This is Sam Swartz and Nate Weggehout with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful, sunny downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A current congressional candidate for Wisconsin's 3rd District has been fined for having a gun in his bag at an airport last August. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that Republican candidate Derek Van Orden had a loaded 9mm handgun in a carry-on in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He was ordered to pay two fines and take a firearm safety course. A campaign representative explained that the incident was accidental and that Van Orden had cooperated, apologized, and thanked the TSA for their hard work. Jacob Blake has dropped the charges against the Kenosha police officer, Rustin Shesky, who shot and left Blake paralyzed from the waist down in August 2020. Blake had filed the civil rights lawsuit in March 2021, claiming that Shesky had used excessive force during the arrest. The Associated Press reports that attorneys for both Blake and Shesky have not provided reasons why the lawsuit was dropped or whether there was a settlement agreement. The court records show that last Friday, the attorneys agreed to dismiss the case with prejudice, meaning that Blake cannot refile the suit. The case was dismissed today by a U.S. district judge. Dane County facilities would move to gender-neutral restrooms, according to a plan introduced to the county board last week. The resolution was introduced by District 36 Supervisor Melissa Ratcliffe. She says she introduced the change because it because of a loved one who is transgender and struggles to find a public bathroom where they are comfortable. The resolution would require relabeling signs for single-stall bathrooms to be more gender-inclusive and future county properties must include gender-neutral bathrooms. The resolution now has 10 co-signers alongside Ratcliffe. The county already has the ability to produce new signs, therefore not requiring a budget amendment. In a bargaining session held last Wednesday, Madison Teachers Incorporated, or MTI, asked the Madison Metro School District for a 4.7% increase in employees-based wages. The district proposed an offer of a 2% increase at the public meeting. They noted their proposed salary increase for longevity may result in a 4% increase in overall salary for the average staff member. MTBuy rebutted that many employees will not acquire the extra 2% for longevity, leaving them with only a 2% base increase rather than 4. The request from MTI for 4.7% would give staff the maximum allowed cost of living increase under state law. The two groups plan to continue negotiations in the coming weeks. And now, on to today's top stories. Tensions over abortion ran high in Madison over the weekend as residents reacted from the leaked draft memo from the U.S. Supreme Court last week. Both pro-choice and pro-life activists let their voices be heard, and one organization was the target of an attack early Sunday morning. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has the details on everything that happened this weekend. The Madison-based anti-abortion group Wisconsin Family Action was targeted for arson and vandalism early Sunday morning. There were no reported injuries from the incident. According to the Madison Police Department, two Molotov cocktails were thrown into the office building on the city's north side, with neat cursive graffiti on the outside of the building reading, If abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. 
Madison police say the two Molotov cocktails did not ignite, but a separate fire was started in the office. The Madison Fire Department was able to extinguish the flames within five minutes of their arrival. Regardless, photos of the office show fire damage on the wall around the window and on the floor. Books and papers were thrown around the office. The nonprofit conservative group says that their mission is to, quote, defend God's plan for marriage, family, life, and religious freedoms in the state of Wisconsin, end quote. In an update today, Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes says the incident is still being investigated by both the Madison Police Department, the FBI, and the ATF. Barnes strongly condemned the incident regardless of the sentiment behind it. The message to Madison residents is that there is no place in Madison for any type of hate speech, for any type of violence or any type of property destruction to advance any cause. And if you're thinking about doing something like that, I would recommend that you not. Um, It doesn't um, uh, look good for your cause. It doesn't look good for our community. And that's not what we expect. One of the things that I really like about Madison is that, you know, we expect to live in a safe community. We don't expect these things to happen. Theories flurried online, alleging that it was a false flag operation. Barnes says that those claims are spurious. I have no indication that this was an inside job. The person um, who owns the building wasn't there at the time, and so I don't know. And there's always going to be conspiracy theories uh, around these things, but I can tell you that there's no there's no place in Madison or anywhere else uh, for this because it could have gone differently, I think, if someone had been there. So, so no, I have no information that that's true at all. Barnes says that the department is still collecting forensic evidence. No arrests have been made, and police currently have no suspects in custody. Barnes says that he does not believe that any other groups or businesses are in danger of a similar incident. Also this weekend was a pro-choice rally that was held at the state capitol. The rally was put on by the Socialist Feminist Collective here in Madison to protest the apparent overturning of Roe v. Wade at the U.S. Supreme Court. If Roe was overturned, Wisconsin would revert to an archaic law on the books that outlaws abortions. Under the 1849 law, abortion providers would be charged with a felony liable to be charged with up to six years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Activists called for the law to be overturned at Saturday's rally saying that Wisconsin residents already have too many barriers to abortion access. Lexi is with the Women's Medical Fund of Wisconsin, a nonprofit dedicated to providing funding and access to women seeking an abortion. The barriers will only increase if Roe v. Wade falls and we lose legal access in Wisconsin. And the people most affected are people of color, people experiencing financial hardship, people who face documentation barriers, transgender and non-conforming people and young people. WORT News Director Sholly Pittman spoke with some of those in attendance at Saturday's rally. Hi, uh, I'm Taylor Diane and I'm here because though this is an issue about abortion and protecting our rights, it's also like affecting other rights as well since they're saying that this isn't rooted in our constitution. So many other things also aren't rooted in our constitution like rights of POC and also um, the LGBTQ community and I think all of those things need to be protected and so I think it's important to fight for one to fight for all. And uh, my name's Hannah, and I actually work in healthcare, and it's honestly terrifying the amount of legislation that thinks they can just come in and come between doctors and patients and just say, no, there's some things that you don't get to have, even though you know your body the best and you know your situation the best. And there are things in healthcare that just don't work for some people and work for other people. And there's a conversation between a doctor and a patient. 
not legislators. Another rally is slated for this Saturday. That rally is also being organized by the Socialist Feminist Collective. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Help. Every six to seven years, a panel of the United Nations releases a report on the progress of climate change. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, reviews and complies key data from thousands of scientists and other experts to describe climate tr- change trends. The IPCC's latest report, published in early April, is the bearer of some bad news. It shows that few countries are on track to meet their emissions goals. WORT reporter Mackenzie Shanahan spoke with an area area researcher about how to understand the report. The IPCC first began releasing reports in 1988 in response to the need for a compiled source of information about the status of climate change. Since then, world leaders have relied on it as a way to benchmark their progress in the fight against global warming. But their most recent report shows a general failure to meet climate change goals. Most countries have fallen short of their goals and emissions reductions. The report states that, without immediate drastic action, keeping the global temperatures from warming less than 1.5 degrees Celsius is now impossible. Yeah, I mean, the top line message is we need to start reducing emissions overall. So for our country and our state, we need to do what we've said we are going to do. UW-Madison professor Greg Nemet played a key role in this report. A professor of public affairs at the La Follette School of Public Affairs, his research centers around energy and climate policy and how these policies can be used to stimulate innovation in low-carbon technology. He helped to write multiple chapters on the growing affordability of alternatives, including solar and wind power and electric cars. On a local level, Professor Nemet touched on how Wisconsin as a state is behind on adopting both renewables and electric vehicles. We had a target that uh, by 2015 we need to get to 10% renewables, and we've met that, but we haven't reset a more ambitious target, but that's what every other state has done. Though the IPCC report pointed out plenty of room for improvement, there are some positives, including the steady decline of fossil fuel emissions over the past decade. In Wisconsin specifically, energy efficiency and a reduction in coal power plants have been a large part of our state's approach to climate change. By 2024-25, we'll really only have, I think, two large coal power plants left in the state. And that, that's huge progress. What a huge source of greenhouse gases. Nemed indicated the importance of action, not just benchmarks, in policy. But what we really need now is action, investment, and policy, and not just targets. So we're We're beyond the stage at which we can say, oh, yeah, we need to get to zero emissions eventually. We actually need to start putting plans together so that, okay, yeah, we have all these fossil fuel assets like pipelines, like power plants, transmission lines for fossil fuels. And we need to shift away from using those for fossil fuels and switch to clean energy sources. In the face of reports that say the world isn't meeting its goals, it's easy to feel hopeless about curbing climate change. But Nemet says that's the wrong frame of mind. You know, we need to have like a a much more can-do, optimistic spirit and approach to the problem. I, I think that at this point, we've known about the issues with climate change long enough. And I think, I, I don't think it really helps that much to talk about how bad the situation is going to be or how much worse it'll be. I think the real focus now needs to be on 
communicating that we have these tools available that used to be expensive or difficult to use, but are now affordable and feasible to implement. Nimet also points to the need to underscore more immediate benefits along with long-term benefits. He says, while improving air quality is important for the future health of the planet, it also has somewhat immediate benefits, like a decline in the number of children having asthma attacks. A common obstacle of green policy choices is a fear of losing jobs or changes in funding. Nimet highlighted the importance of aiding the transition process on both an individual and a community level. So we need to make sure there's transition available for, say, communities that fund their schools with taxes from uh, coal power plants and things like that. Um, So there's transition that we have to work on, but there's huge opportunity in making this transition. The biggest takeaway from the report? There's still hope. Nimet emphasized the wide range of students he has interacted with that have demonstrated their willingness to help work towards solutions. I think that's that's what I find kind of one of the real sources of optimism here, is just having more people behind this effort. And I think engaging more people is a big part of what I'm doing now. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Mackenzie Shanahan. The time now is 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last Friday, Kinyara Gadsen was sentenced to 13 years in prison after she shot and killed a man in what she calls self-defense in 2018. Advocates around Madison have called for Gadsen's release since her arrest in 2018 and are demanding that she be released from jail and the Dane County District Attorney Ishmael Ozan to resign over the sentencing. One of those groups is Freedom Action Now, a nonprofit organization advocacy group. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Ananda Deacon from Freedom Action Now about the case and why they feel that Gadsden, a queer black woman, was discriminated against. So just to begin here, Ananda, what happened in 2018, or maybe I should sort of say, what did Kinyera say happened versus what the prosecutors say happened? So uh, in 2018, um, well, I guess the story actually starts even before 2018, more like 2014, uh, there was a long back and forth uh, between Kinyera and her group of friends um, and a man in her community that was um, abusing and terrorizing, essentially, Kinyera and her friends. Um, Kinyera and her friends uh, were shot at multiple times. Um, They'd be at community events, and this other group would pull up on them and just start badgering them and causing um, scenes and whatnot. And so there was a period of time, about four to five years leading up to that point, in which Kinyera would be just harassed and intimidated by this man and his group of friends. So leading up to that night, it was a freak fest in 2018, I believe. Kinyera was out with one other friend. And uh, they were trying to leave the event, and they were being followed by this man and his group of friends again into a parking ramp. 
And once uh, Kinyera and her friend got to their car, this man, um, I believe he threw the first punch at Kinyera's friend and a, a fight ensued. Um, and so Kinyera, reacting in self-defense for herself and her friend, uh, fired a single shot that unfortunately struck and killed uh, one of the man's uh, friends in that group. And so from our perspective, knowing how often um, Black women uh, are in abusive and uh, dangerous situations and knowing how the police often see Black women as aggressors, we're coming from the perspective that this was a case of self-defense. The DA uh, did not agree with us, as you know, um, which is very odd because the same DA, I believe, there was another case um, between um, a white man who uh, believed uh, there was an intruder, but it was his roommate, and he shot and killed him, and he was allowed to plead the castle doctrine in that case. And so it's not like this DA uh, never acknowledges self-defense, right? It's just that he doesn't acknowledge it for Black women is where we're coming from. So Kinyera was ultimately charged with first-degree uh, intentional homicide. Well, I think he might have modified it to be first-degree reckless homicide in the end. Um, but they originally were pushing for Kinyera to get 65 years in prison. So that's why we've organized a campaign around her um, to really bring attention to this case, to really push the city of Madison to practice what they preach, essentially, by taking a firm stance to defend Black women, especially Black queer women. We are often put in situations in which violence is forced upon us, but we're denied the right to defend ourselves, essentially. We're seen as having no self-worthy of defending. So that's essentially the story leading up to this point. And now, so as you sort of mentioned there uh, on Friday, uh, Kinyera was sentenced to 13 years in prison for the shooting. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what happened on Friday there? And then sort of along those same lines, your group Freedom Action Now has been vocally on her side throughout all of this. So can you sort of just talk, tell me about your thoughts on this sentence here as well? Um, I was also one of the folks giving court support uh, throughout the trial. Um, the trial itself was happening in early January this year. Uh, Kinyero was in jail uh, for two years. Uh, her bail was at $100,000 before Free the 350 bailed her out. So she got out in 2020 and had served uh, jail time for two years up until that point. And while I was in court, I heard the language that the DA was using um, to really paint uh, his side of the story. Um, it was homophobic and anti-Black language, quite frankly, um, essentially painting Kinyera as an aggressor who uh, had nothing to fear, um, who lured these people into the parking ramp with the intention from the get-go uh, to shoot them. Um, and just painting her as um, a villain and a provocateur. And that's not something unusual 
that black queer women have to go through. We're hyper-masculinized, we're hyper and um, as I mentioned, we're just painted as the villains and aggressors. So that's how uh, my reaction to this sentencing was, that it felt like Kinyera was set up to fail from the get-go, right? Like, there wasn't even... Um, there wasn't even a case for self-defense to be truly made in court because the DA had already, um, he had already made up his mind about how he wanted the case to go, it felt like. So on Friday, because um, as I said, she was sentenced in January. And so on Friday, May 6th, um, we would get the official sentencing. Um, Jessica Williams is our gender justice director at Freedom Inc. And so in her role as an advocate for black survivors of violence, she provides um, familial, emotional support, um, all types of direct services to Kiniera and her family and other families. And so this entire time, she had been going to court, uh, making sure she was present, making sure the family had food. And so they knew we were going to be there on Friday, essentially. And as I said, Jessica's role was to provide the family with more court support. And that's why she was there um, around 8 a.m. that morning. The hearing was going to start at 830. Uh, she and only a couple other of our staff were there as well to provide court support. And so um, not many of us even were there to witness this happen because, again, the only thing we had planned was later on that day, the press conference, right? So there wasn't even a lot of us there. So as I said, she entered the court. Um, our staff said that she went through security and they just immediately pulled her to the side, six or seven police officers. Um, you can look up online what her charges were. When I last checked, it seemed like they were disorderly conduct, uh, resisting arrest, um, I think battery of some sort. Um, it, it's just very confusing because she was just arrested immediately. She didn't break any laws. Um, it, it just seemed like a retaliatory action for all the direct services and support Jessica has been giving to Black women and Black survivors of violence. And this isn't the first time the DA has inflicted violence and harm against Black women. I've been talking with Ananda Deacon, field organizer for Freedom Action Now, about the sentencing of Kinyera Gadsen to 13 years in prison. Ananda, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. No problem. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout takes a look at all the meetings happening around Madison and Dane County this week. The past doesn't pass heads to Philadelphia to examine the police bombing of prominent black activists and two new movie reviews. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines back in a flash.
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nate Wuggy-Hout, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thank you for joining us. For a preview of what's happening in local government this week, Forward Lookout's Brenda Conkle and producer Dylan Brogan walk us through the important meetings and agenda items up for debate. This week, a jam-packed city council agenda and health officials discuss more gun control. All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County. Still virtual meetings, unless we say otherwise. So the Board of Public Health for Madison and Dane County, their executive committee is meeting tonight. So that's already in progress. Started at 5 p.m. Uh, what do we need to know about that meeting? Well, looks like maybe um, they did not have quorum last week or something because the entire agenda from last week's meeting um, was repeated again this week, um, and it's just going in front of the executive committee. So that's kind of interesting. Not sure exactly what's going on there, but um, they do have that resolution about um, the city of Madison wanting to regulate firearms um, mm-hmm. that has been previously preempted by the state of Wisconsin. Um, but sounds like maybe the city attorney has figured out something they can do to get around that. Um, they do have something, some funding that they're getting for a collaborative mental health crisis response team pilot. Um, so that may be of interest to some folks. And then they're looking at that violence prevention RP concept paper. And again, all those things are on the agenda last week, but something must have happened. So they're doing it again. All right. Well, good to know. Yep. Um, and what about the Personnel and Finance Committee, which is uh, virtual and all, and that started at 5.30 today? All of the county board standing committees are going to be electing their chairs and vice chairs. Um, so that's the first thing they'll be doing. Um, this is important because during budget time, those chairs have a lot of power when it comes to which amendments get approved and do not get approved during the budget. So um, a lot of the committees will have that on their agenda this week. In addition to that, they'll be looking at the purchase of the um, property from the city of Madison for the county landfill. Um, And then they will also be looking at providing an inflation mitigation payment to Dane County employees. Um, And then they're getting an update on the American Rescue Plan money and where it's all gone. Tuesday, we have a Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, and like you mentioned, a lot of these county committees are electing their chair and vice chair, which is can be consequential. Um, but what else is uh, that committee talking about at 6.30 tomorrow? Sure. So they'll be getting, um, they have two resolutions about accepting some grant funds. One is for a bomb explosive breaching training, and the other is for the Milwaukee high-intensity drug trafficking area. Um, sort of a triangle between, uh, or not a triangle, but between Milwaukee, um, Minnesota, Chicago, and Madison, there's sort of a high-intensity high drug trafficking area that they get a grant for every year. And then um, the sheriff's office will be doing a presentation about the jail consolidation project. And finally, in county business, we have on Thursday, the Health and Human Needs Committee, and They'll be, it looks like they'll be accepting some grant money too, or um, maybe I got that wrong. You tell us for sure, Brenda, are they? Yeah, they have relief funds that they'll be accepting to um, authorize expenditures for employee recognition. Um, And that seems to be mostly within the human services division. Um, And then they have a project, an affordable housing project at 651 East Washington or East Mifflin, um, which is right by the Salvation Army. So I think that that's what that project is. And then they are extending the money for um, the um, hotels where they put people when they are at, um, if they 
have tested positive for COVID or have been in close contact with folks, um, they're going to be extending that for an additional 30 days. And then um, they are extending the staffing for the hotels, but not the actual hotel rooms. So that as people are leaving the hotels, the, the workers who had been working with them while they were in the hotels can continue working with them in the housing hotels to housing program. Well, let's move on to the city of Madison. Um, maybe we'll just kind of lump these two together because they, they probably are wrapping up right about now. But uh, Landmarks and Plan Commission uh, met virtually tonight. So, yeah, what are the, the big projects that they discussed? Sure. Um, Landmarks has two small projects on uh, 1700 block of Regent Street and the 1200 block of Spate Street. And then they're looking at their Landmarks ordinance um, and all the revisions that they want to make to that. Plan Commission had a relatively short agenda. There's a whole bunch of things that the the developers decided they did not want to go forward tonight. So they have three projects, uh, 710 John Nolan Drive, uh, 114 North Blount Street, and 1701 Moreland Road. And then uh, Tuesday, the Common Council has another sort of whopper of a long meeting and no yeah. executive no executive committee. So 630 uh, virtually, that's that's coming up uh, tomorrow. For, um, yeah, so I mean, just give us the highlights of what the Common Council is up to tomorrow. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big agenda, um, so it's definitely worth taking a look at. Um, there is a project in the Oscar Mayer Special Area Plan on Ross Street and Ruskin Street, so um, if people are interested in that area, they may want to pay attention to that project. Um, they are authorizing um, zoning, um, not zoning approvals, but um, an allowed use of taverns um, sure. and restaurants and brew pubs and all kinds of things in the mixed um, neighborhood district. And so some people are a little bit upset about that. Um, there's several more um, projects. There is going to be an appeal um, for the project at 3734 Speedway Road. Um, that is an appeal from the plan commission. They'll be talking about uh, their steps to how they hire their um, uh, common council staff. Um, there's also the Youth Poet Laureate, the selling of the property from Yahari Hills for the landfill. Um, and then they are that medians uh, ordinance about. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, cementing over some of the grassy areas in, in the medians. Um, that's another one that's on there. And then they also have the. Um, accessory dwelling units proposal about how they're going to um, spend money. Yeah, those or, grandma houses. Yep. Let's just wrap up with the park commissioners. <laughs> That's happening 630 um, on Wednesday. Yep, they have um, the commitment to supporting pollinator health. Uh, so the birds and the bees, <laughs> um, they're, they're interested in um, doing a, a resolution about that. Um, they have a few events um, where they're extending the hours in McPike Park. And uh, for the um, for session, the sessions at McPike Park, as yeah. well as Pet to Marquette, and um, also extending some hours out at Oliver Park for the Jack Lantern World, um, and then Opera in the Park also extending some hours. So uh, lots of events and music coming back to the community. So that's exciting. Uh, they do have a final report about the West Wingra Watershed Report, and then they are looking at. Um, some of their, their planning that they're doing for the Parks Department. And there's more going on in the city of Madison and Dane County, and you can check it all out at forwardlookout.com. So, Brenda, thank you for putting together um, that list for us and for giving us a preview. Sure, no problem.
This Friday marks the date in 1985 when the Philadelphia police dropped a bomb on MOVE, a black liberation back-to-nature group. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story for this week's The Past Isn't Past. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Friday, May 13th, marks the day in 1985 that the Philadelphia police dropped a detonation bomb on the move home, an African-American collective, killing 11 people. Incredibly, the bombing was sanctioned by the police commissioner, Gregor Sambor, and Philadelphia's first African-American mayor, Wilson Good. Compounding the crime was the police commissioner's decision to let the fire burn, which destroyed 61 homes and resulted in 11 MOVE members dying as they were trapped in the basement under the fire in a hail of police bullets. Only two MOVE members escaped. MOVE was a group that combined black liberation with back-to-nature environmentalism. They regarded themselves as family and adopted the last name Africa, like their founder, John Africa. Africa believed that all life was sacred and all matter should be recycled. MOVE's original house was in a changing neighborhood near the University of Pennsylvania. MOVE set up a bullhorn calling out tirades and leading protests against gentrification. They also got arrested for nonviolent protests at the Board of Education and against animal abuse at the Philadelphia Zoo. Tensions with the local police escalated in March of 1976 when MOVE and the police skirmished, injuring both sides. MOVE says an infant named Life was killed in the attacks. Afterwards, John Africa said MOVE would counter with violence if attacked. MOVE started patrolling outside their house with weapons. This led to a police raid on the house in May 1978 in which a police officer was fatally shot. A forensic expert absolved MOVE from the shooting, and evidence suggests it was a friendly fire accident since the bullet entered the officer from the back. Despite this, nine members of MOVE each got 30 years for killing the police officer. The MOVE collective changed to a different neighborhood in 1982, but tensions increased. Then, in the early morning hours of May 13, 1985, 500 police came to the MOVE home, in defiance of the mayor's orders to stay away. Police had a warrant to make four arrests. They shut off water and electricity. Commissioner Sambor read a long speech to the MOVE members that started with, Attention MOVE, this is America. You have to abide by the laws of the United States. When MOVE didn't respond, police shot tear gas. MOVE reportedly shot back. Then police shot 10,000 rounds of ammunition into the house, unleashed water cannons, pumped in tear gas, and blew off the front of the house with explosives. Next, police dropped the bomb from a state police helicopter onto the fortified bunker on the roof of the MOVE house. Only 29-year-old Ramona Africa and 13-year-old Birdie Africa escaped the MOVE house, and both were badly burned. Ramona said the police kept firing at the house after they escaped through the basement. Ramona was arrested, charged with riot and conspiracy, and spent seven years in prison the only person to be convicted of crimes arising from the attack. Commissioner Sambor resigned in November. Later, there was a special commission that issued a report on March 6, 1986. It denounced the city's actions, calling police tactics grossly negligent at best and outrageous at worst, and saying dropping a bomb on an occupied row house was unconscionable. The commission noted police would not have dropped a bomb 
had the move house and its occupants been situated in a comparable white neighborhood. There was only one dissenter to this statement on the commission. In fact, the plastic C4 explosive in the bomb had been illegally obtained by the FBI. It had also been commonly used in Vietnam. In 1996, Ramona Africa and two relatives of the bombing's victims, including Birdie, were awarded $1.5 million by a federal jury. Ramona was also awarded $500,000 for harm suffered in the fire. In 2005, a federal judge ordered the city to pay. 50 people who lost their homes in the fire nearly $13 million total. In 2018, the Philadelphia City Council, under pressure, including from former Mayor Good, formally apologized for the bombing and called for a day of observation, reflection, and recommitment on the anniversary of the bombing each year as a step toward reconciliation. Mike Africa Jr., whose parents were two of the nine MOVE members in prison from the 1978 raid, has led efforts to free the MOVE 9 and has been involved in reconciliation efforts, welcomed the decision. Other MOVE members like Ramona Africa remained skeptical. Two of the MOVE 9 members died in prison, and the others started to be paroled soon after the 2018 investigation by the Guardian newspaper began. In February 2020, the last of the group was freed after nearly 40 years in prison. Mike Africa Jr. is still working for one more release, an associate of MOVE, Mumia Abu-Jamal. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This weekend, the WORT News Department won a slate of statewide journalism awards for a combined total of 12 awards from the Milwaukee Press Club and Wisconsin Broadcasters Association. Today, we take another listen to one of those stories that took home a gold award from the Milwaukee Press Club, produced by contributor Carrie Ann Welsh. In May of last year, Welsh traveled to the West Point Pet Memorial in Wanakee. Here is her award-winning feature, Pet Cemetery. This is Desire Lines, sharing emergent stories, slow scenes, and lines of connection. Just got to the Pet Cemetery, to the Westport Pet Memorial. I just realized I have something called a dead cat on my microphone. I went out there on a Scorpio full moon and one of the windiest days of spring. There's a group of markers for Wisconsin police dogs. The dogs of duty. Greg, Greg's marker says, the smart end of the leash. <laughs> Thor's marker says, Thornado, in quotes. Aww, this is a cat grave. Munch. From July 2007 to August 2016. Our baby Mau Mau. Sweet to think of all the people who have loved all of these creatures, all of these beings. I have one gentleman out there, he goes and he sits and he reads to, for years he just sits, brings his lawn chair and he reads 
poems to his dog or he reads a book. And he's, But people are out there a lot, yeah. This is Susan Porter. And I'm the owner of Westport Pet Memorial. 1982, it was pretty much established. The cemetery, first of all, is part of a family farm, actually, where I was born. I've had everything from injured crows that I brought back to raising litters of skunks on the farm where the mother got killed. Anything else? Yeah. I've always had dogs, dogs and cats. Many years ago, I showed old English mastiffs across the country, and um, I had come across some, there aren't very many of them, but some very nice pet cemeteries. And I never really um, thought about that concept before, but I got thinking, you know, that's a real need because at that time the condominium concept was really coming in and people weren't staying in their homes, you know, like years when I grew up, you know, you were born and almost died in the same place that you were. (laughs) And, And people were moving around more, but they all wanted to have a place where they knew where their pet was going to be. And, um, of course, I had, growing up, I had our little graveyard and so on on the farm. But then I got thinking about it, and I thought, okay, so my dogs are getting older, and I want a nice memorial, you know, for them, where when I'm gone, they will still be kind of memorialized and I thought I thought there probably other people out there like me so I just started very quietly and <laughs> it just kind of grew so some graves don't say what animal is buried there it just says that the animal's name some of them have a picture of a cat face like or a photograph. Tinkerbell, our little honey. Peaches, from heaven to heaven. There's a small round stone and Cuddles is engraved on it with an image of a bunny. And next to it is a little statue of a bunny. Hey Cuddles. Here's two cats, there's no dates, it just says, just a piece of marble, sort of even with the ground. It says, my beloved companions, fluff and stuff and snowshoe. S-N-O dash S-H-O-O. Here's a little framed photo of Woody the dog with a picture of its owner. And all of Woody's nicknames like Pumpkin Butt, Pumpkin Bottom, Dough Butt, Dough Bottom, Dew, Smudge Face, Bud, Hun Bun, Good Boy. I've had people that have their pastors out there and, and they just have a small gathering. Some people I've had up to 15 uh, you know, or more family members all come and they say, they say I like a little memories of the pet or whatever, and they just all just come say goodbye, basically. Just basically a final dignified resting place for the 
everybody I know has they consider the the pet a member of their family, you know, and um, it's an alternative to cre cremation. It will be there. It has gone through all you know all the zoning. It will be there. There's actually five acres dedicated to the cemetery, so um, it's just kind of a passion of mine. There's another Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell the cat. She loved us and we loved her. For WORT News, this is Carrie Ann Welsh. Today's feature contributor, Harry Richardson, reviews two movies, the new Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness on the big screen and a restored documentary from 1979 on the small screen, The, the Wobblies on the Radical Union of the Early 1900s, featuring great first-hand accounts by veteran IWW members. You break the rules and become a hero. I do it and I become the enemy. Fair. That was a clip from the trailer for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, directed by Sam Raimi. This is a fun sequel to the earlier Doctor Strange and fits in nicely to the ongoing storyline of the Marvel comic universe. As the title implies, we go on another wild trip through the multiverse. There are some cool special effects and an enjoyable A-list cast with its own tragic villain. The movie opens with an action scene, with Strange again played with a certain swagger by Benedict Cumberbatch. We are thrust into a feverish landscape of floating objects and Doctor Strange in dire straits. It all turns out to be a dream though, but is it? Strange wakes up and soon finds himself at an even scarier place, the wedding of his former love, Christine Palmer. Rachel McAdams. Luckily for Strange, a one-eyed monster resembling a giant octopus threatens New York and he flies to the rescue, saving a teenager, America Chavez Soto Gomez. She seems familiar because he saw her in his dream. It seems Strange's dream has tapped into an adventure by another Strange in a parallel Earth who also became involved with Chavez. Chavez has the uncontrolled ability to move between universes. The multiverse of Marvel's imagining is a series of Earths that exist side by side but have taken different paths to sometimes drastically different worlds than the one we inhabit. Soon, Strange is defending her from Wanda Maximoff, Scarlet Witch, Elizabeth Olsen. Wanda needs Chavez to go to a parallel Earth where she is a happy mom with two kids. Yes, you heard that right. It seems Wanda wakes up from a blissful dream with two young children to her own lonely present. Wanda becomes aware of Chavez's presence, and Strange enlists his old colleague Wong, a fun Benedict Wong, and a host of allies to defend Chavez. This defense fails, and Strange flees through the multiverse with Chavez. Wanda is hot on their trail. We also get the return of rival sorcerer Carl Morado, Chiwetal Ejiofor. Some fun cameos of Marvel's heroes, and a lot more action, and some cool special effects. I don't expect much romance, though. At the risk of a little spoiler, it seems that in all the multiverses, Doctor Strange never gets the girl. All in all, a fun superhero action-adventure movie, a solid addition to the Doctor Strange story and the Marvel storyline. Stay through the credits for a hint about the next movie. Let the summer blockbuster season begin, coming July 8th, a new Thor movie. Up next, 
something more serious in a May Day theme. Industrial workers of the world work, good wages, and respect. That's what they wanted for the workers. To be people, not nobody. That was Glib from the trailer for The Wobblies, a newly restored documentary directed by Deborah Schaefer and Stuart Bird. The movie showed for free last weekend as part of an online Workers Unite film festival. The movie, first released in 1979, has a remarkable collection of elderly, wobbly veterans talking about the heyday of the radical labor organization, the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW. They talk about the major campaigns of the IWW from its founding in Chicago in 1905 to its effective repression during and after World War I. The IWW was founded by a dynamic group of organizers including Big Bill Hayward of the radical Western Federation of Miners who gaveled into existence the IWW with the words, Fellow Workers, this is the Industrial Congress of the Working Class. Also on stage were socialist leader, labor organizer Eugene Debs, Mother Jones, Lucy Parsons, and others. The IWW was formed to include all workers, skilled and unskilled, regardless of race, color, or gender. They started from the premise that the working class and the employing class had nothing in common, and that the two classes must clash until the workers are triumphant and come to run the world. It was great listening to the Wobblies reminisce about the major campaigns in the textile mills of the East. Lawrence and Patterson, the agricultural workers' organization across the Midwest, the lumber workers of the Northwest, the free speech fights, the Bisbee miners' deportation, the successful biracial Philadelphia dock workers' local, and more. The dock also credited the importance of music to the cause, the wobs bursting into song themselves. We also heard here and there singing by Utah Phillips. The film is also available on Vudu, well worth checking out, as are the other films in the Workers Unite Film Festival. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Mackenzie Shanahan. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Carrie Ann Welsh, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggiehout produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I've been your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Nate Wuggiehout. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.